We go back to Hebrews today. Jesus is better. Than what? Than anything. But greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. And now we come to the biggest section of Hebrews, which is Jesus is our great high priest, greater than any priest. Let's pray together, shall we, before we get into this. Lord, today we celebrate our Queen's birthday. And we thank you that we have a profoundly Christian lady on the throne of England who thoroughly believes in you, thoroughly loves the gospel, who asks us for prayers to sustain her and for her family. We do pray for her family. We join with the Queen's prayer that her family will be those who devote themselves to Jesus and to love the truth. Thank you for the years that she served us. We honour her leadership of this country, her wisdom. She's dealt with prime minister after prime minister and government after government. Now, Lord, we pray as we can come to your word that the Holy Spirit will give us insight so that the things we hear are not words simply that register in our minds, between our ears, so to speak, but actually dig into our hearts. Your word, Lord, is like a sharper than two-edged sword. It comes to cut, to cut some things away and to open some things up. And we, we want to be open before you today to receive what you want to say to us. Amen. So this, Jesus being our great high priest, really starts back not at chapter 5, verse 1, but in, in our... English Bibles in chapter 4, verse 14. So I'm going to go back there to begin with today. By the way, the oldest English Bibles, including Tyndale and Coverdale, got it right. Chapter 5 started at what we now have as chapter 4.14. They copied Luther's German Bible. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me talk a bit again to you about mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Timely help in trouble is another way of translating that. I like that one. Timely help in trouble. Mercy receives us as we are. Right? In the old days when we gave gospel appeals and, you know, raise your hands or come to the front, very often in such meetings people would sing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Mercy receives us just as we are. We don't have to improve ourselves. don't have to clean ourselves up first. We come as we are and receive mercy. Mercy accepts us, forgives us, cleanses us. But grace takes us and makes us more than mercy takes us. Grace takes us and makes us to be what we could never be apart from God's empowering spirit, God's work in us. Listen to how Paul writes about grace and about the power of God too because that's another way of describing it. I pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man 
You on the inside, like we were singing from the inside out earlier, you on the inside be strengthened with the power of God. It's another way of talking about God's empowering presence, his grace. Colossians 1, similar passage, strengthened with all power. With a little bit here and there. No, with all power. According to his glorious might. For the attaining of steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. It goes on, all right? And Philippians 4.13, you all know this one. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not in my own strength, but through his strength. That's, those are ways of describing this grace of God. The grace of God goes further than the remittance of sin and guilt. It empowers us to live as children of God for the glory of our Father. And a gospel that only declares forgiveness for sins without also declaring this renewal and empowerment by the grace of God is less than half the truth. But that is the way that many traditional churches do think, particularly Catholics, for whom you know, I'm not criticizing, I have pity for them. That they, their idea of what it is to be a Christian is to just keep on being forgiven but keep on getting it wrong. Yeah? You keep going back for forgiveness. And you, so they have a kind of a doctrine in a sense of mercy, but there's no grace. There's no empowering presence of God filling you with his spirit, giving you all might, all strength to live as his child for his glory. We come with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace. Grace takes you further. Grace takes you and makes you to be what you could never be in yourself. Andrew Murray, I read his commentary this week. I got some things out of his commentary this week. I like this. The infinite mercy of God's love resting on us and the almighty grace of his spirit working in us will ever be found at a throne of grace if we but come boldly trusting in Jesus alone. All of his mercy, all of his love, but all of his grace, all of his power, all the help that his spirit can give us, I found simply by coming boldly to the throne of grace. So what was your need again? What was the question again? <laughs> so the writer goes on now in what we, what we count as 5-1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and offering sacrifices sorry, for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is ob- obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Going to work through that. Let me give you my definition of what a priest is. This is from the Old Testament right through. A priest has the task of representing the people before God. He's appointed to that task, making offerings, sacrifices for them, and interceding for them in his person, his prayers, and his priestly work. Just the fact that a high priest stood in the presence of God was, a, was an act of intercession. Then he uttered words of prayer. And he did things you know, with his body, with his hands, which were also intercession and the, the work of the priest representing the people. 
But this priest, if he's going to represent the people well, can't look down on them, oh, those so-and-sos. He has to have a sympathy, a pity, a feeling with the people. He needs to be able to deal gently with them, as well as offering sacrifices for their sins. That's what the writer is describing to us here, not just about any high priest. He's really getting us to think about Jesus. Let's summarize this so far. First three verses of uh, chapter 4, 14 down. Jesus is our great high priest, has entered into the highest heaven, into the presence of God, there to stand, to pray, to represent us, to point to the offering that is made. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's been tried in all things as we are, yet without sin. We therefore are urged to draw near to the throne of grace, to receive, not just to ask for, to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of trouble or need from him. Now the comparison goes further. Jesus deals gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself was beset with weaknesses. A high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. Jesus experienced our weakness, but did not fail. Therefore, he can deal, listen to these words, gently, with the ignorant and the misguided. I want to hang out on this for a few minutes. Jesus understands our weaknesses. He's been tempted in everything as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, which means this, he doesn't disdain and dismiss them. He deals with them out of love, out of mercy. He deals gently with them. It's a lovely scripture in Isaiah. One old Puritan wrote a whole book on this phrase. Isaiah 42 verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. How many of us have been at times a bruised reed, almost flapping off in the wind? How many of us have been a dimly burning wick? You know, there's, there's, not much, there's not much light left there. There's not much fire left there. What does it say here about Messiah, about our Lord Jesus? He will not break you. He will not snuff you out. What will he do instead? He will strengthen you. Who will he not help then? He helps the ignorant, the misguided, the bruised reed, the, the, the smoking the dimly burning wick. Who doesn't he help then? The answer is this, the proud. The proud. The independent. James 4 says he gives greater grace to the humble, but it says this, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, if you can work out life for yourself, you know all the tricks. You've got it all sorted. You're the big man. You're the strong-minded one. Then go ahead. But know this. Scripture does not say that God will ignore you. It says that God will oppose you. He will resist you. It's all in your hands and all in your head. It's not just, oh, I can do this without God. God says, really? He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Pride was the primal sin, the beginning of sin. At some point, just after the creation of the world, it seems to me, Satan's heart was lifted up with pride. I will be like God. Thrown out of heaven. Gets busy very quickly. Whispering into the ear of Eve, you will be like God. If you do what he told you not to do, you will be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And ha-ha, yeah, You'll be like him. Do you see that? I will be like God. Becomes, you will be like God. He's, what does he do? He's infecting humanity with pride, with sin. Some people misquote the scripture, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not. It's the root of many kinds of evil. There is one thing which is the root of all evil, and it's this. Pride. I will. My will. Not God's. You know? It's the sin of Satan which became the sin of men. And it's the thing that will stop us from receiving the grace of God. You see, for many of us, we think it's our weakness that's our problem. No, no, no. God can deal with weak people. It's your strength that's the problem. That you think you can operate without him. That's the bigger problem. When God wrestled with Jacob, he put his thigh out of joint and he limped on that leg the rest of his life. And John Wimber, a great charismatic Christian leader once said, I like men who limp. In fact, he said, I like leaders who limp. In other words, they know they're weak, but they keep relying on God. But the ones who think they're strong, they're, they're, they're dangerous. They're loose cannons on the deck. It is self-dependence that will keep us from his help. He deals gently with the humble. When I was a little kid, taught to pray at night time. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Pity my simple city. That's the way I heard it. What simple city? (laughs) (laughs) Suffer me. And suffer me was like, whoa, suffer me? Make me, cause me pain to come to thee? Shall I say we misunderstand the word suffer? We'll come to that in a minute. But he, he, he is with those who are meek, with those who will humble themselves, with those who will admit their weakness. He deals gently with us. He does. The scripture says so. He deals gently with the ignorant and misguided, so long as they know they're ignorant and misguided and are looking for help. Being honest, being real. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. Yeah, come on. Let's let's, let's sort this through. But we get to choose between pride and humility. And it's something we act out. You see, oh, I don't feel humble. Oh, I don't feel... Just do the humble thing. And the, you begin to get more into that mode. You know, we're to humble our hearts. It, it means, you know, you, you go to God and you say the words and you, you go through the action of doing it, you know. You may, may feel that to kneel to pray rather than what you usually do, walk around with it. But you act it out. You say, Father, I'm sorry, I, I humble myself before you. You do it. Don't, don't stay waiting till you feel like it. It's like feeling like fasting. You'll never feel like fasting. You just do it. 
Some days you don't feel like praying. Some days you don't feel like reading the Bible. For goodness sake, don't you understand? Your feelings work against you a lot of the time. So it's not about feeling humble. It's doing the humble thing in the eyes of God. Going to your private closet, you know, closing the door, praying to your father who sees you in secret and so on. Then Jesus has offered sacrifice for our sins. But unlike that high priest who had to offer sacrifices for the sins of himself as well as his people, Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice which was entirely for us, not for himself. He made his soul an offering for sin, Isaiah 53. Though tried in every way, he did not sin. So all the sin upon him at the cross was ours, not his. And Jesus was appointed to this honour and task. He was appointed to it. A high priest does not take the honour to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron was. So we read now how the writer explains how Jesus was appointed to this priesthood, even though he was not of the line of Aaron, he was the line of Jude and not Levi. So he wasn't part of that priesthood system. Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, God the Father, who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you, which is Psalm 2, also says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Two main qualifications for a priest. One, he must be one of the people. He must be like them, he must understand them, he must have pity for them, deal gently with them, because he represents them before God. Then he must be appointed and chosen by God. He's not voted in like a general election. God has to choose who's the, who the priest is. Jesus fulfills both qualifications. He's made like us, understands us. And Jesus did not just turn up one day. If you can read it, particularly in John's Gospel, again and again, Jesus says, I didn't come except the Father sent me. I do always the things that please the Father. He was sent. He was appointed. God the Father spoke words of commission, it seems to me, not just at his baptism in Jordan, this is my beloved Son in whom I will please, or at the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. But from eternity, if we can get our heads around it, God the Father was speaking to his Son, you are my Son. He was honouring his Son and loving his Son. You see, we talk about a good, good Father... The fatherhood of God didn't start with him adopting us. It started him with begetting Jesus. Eternally. The, the, the dearly beloved son of an eternal father. You are my son. Before time the son was begotten. But then this letter is also telling us in the same way the father appointed Jesus to be our great high priest. And in fact he did that with an eternal perspective as well. He's an eternal high priest forever. According to that, not according to Aaron and Levi and so on, but the mysterious person called Melchizedek who was actually priest to Abraham. So the second quotation there is from Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek comes in a few weeks' time. The Bible, Hebrews, tells a lot about Jesus being like Melchizedek, but that's not where we're going today. All right? It just kind of flags it up and leaves it till later, which is what we need to do. But the writer now goes back to Jesus himself, picking out for us Jesus answering these issues, being our great high priest. 
The first point is this, Jesus prayed. Now that, that isn't a scripture. Jesus wept is a scripture, isn't it, in John? The tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. But these statements are powerful, aren't they? Jesus wept. True humanity felt such grief, wept. Jesus prayed. It says in verse 7, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Jesus prays for us now, in heaven, as our high priest, but that's not what the writer is pointing to here. He says, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he was with us, when he was on earth, when he walked amongst us, Jesus prayed, and sometimes prayed like that. Offered up prayers and supplications with what? Loud crying and tears. This, is what, this wasn't a loud voice for the sake of being heard to pray. Oh, heavenly Father! So everybody gets to hear what a good prayer you are. This was Jesus pouring his guts out, his heart out. And by the way, let me just, seems obvious to say it, but if he prayed, how much more do we need to pray? This is particularly talking about Gethsemane, isn't it? When he did this. I'm going to read you Luke's brief account to you. <clears throat> Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In Matthew, it says, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Oh, what humility that one of his created angels comes and strengthens the creator. And being in agony. I'll tell you what that word means. It means agony. He was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he got up from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you praying? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He offered prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears, which, and also sweat blood, to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, and yet the father didn't save him from death, But Jesus was strengthened to go and face the death. Andrew Murray again. Some good quotes. It's a bit small. When Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he spoke from personal experience. It's what he was going through right then. Spirit is willing, flesh is weak. And unless the weakness of the flesh were upheld, or rather overcome, by power received in prayer from above, that weakness would so easily enter into temptation and become sin. And again, Maria writes, Gethsemane was the training school where our high priest, made like to us in all things, 
learnt his last and most difficult lesson of obedience through what he suffered. In his prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears, Jesus maintained his allegiance to God's will. In wrestlings and bloody sweat, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, I had a sense writing this last few days that someone here might well be thinking, our pastor, you don't know, though, I'm, I'm in a very dark place. Really? Darker than Gethsemane? Darker than Golgotha? Jesus went to the darkest places for us. For three hours on the cross he hung in darkness and silence while the presence and the love of the Father was gone from him. As he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of the whole world. He cried out at the end of those three hours in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the whole of Psalm 22 is the prediction and description, thousand years before, of Jesus on the cross. So let me tell you again. You cannot deny or defeat this truth that Jesus knows and identifies us with us in everything that we can ever Jesus knows and identifies with us in every experience of life. Now, I can't do that. Because I, I don't have your, your character. I don't have your framework of emotions and thoughts and all the rest of it. I'm, I'm male, not female, which is one big issue. So I can't do that. But Jesus, the Bible says it plainly, authoritatively, understands you from the inside out. He endured. He went through, which is why I brought that word earlier. He went through. He will hear your cry for help. He will supply mercy and grace. He will help you to endure, to keep going. He will bring you through. For we are following him and walking with him. Here it is spelled out to us line by line. Verse 8. Jesus endured. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The word suffered is old-fashioned, isn't it? As it, in, that, in the song I learned as a little kid, suffer me to come to thee. It means allow me. Oh, allow it is an expression that, isn't it? Allow it. Suffer it to be so means just allow it. That's all. So suffer is an old English word which has all sorts of connotations. I checked this yesterday with Carol and Luke. And, and we all of us... When when we hear the word suffering or suffered, have in mind something like this. Either someone really ill in a hospital bed, or someone very, very poor squatting in a slum, or someone emaciated in a famine. We think about suffering in one of those ways. All right? And the problem is, in the Bible, suffering isn't altogether negative. The word includes our enduring, our going through. Jesus suffered the cross, endured the cross, despised the shame. He saw the other side, the joy that was set before him. So he embraced the momentary, momentary hours of suffering in the sense of pain because he endured the cross. All right? 
So suffering in the Bible includes this thought of enduring, of going through. Not just putting up with the pain, but going through the situation. He went through these things. He accepted the process. He accepted the pain. He submitted himself to the Father, but he overcame. He overcame the cross. He overcame the grave. He went through them. And here's the next point. He learned something on the way through. Jesus obeyed. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He obeyed. Listen to this. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Again, you might want to put the word endured then because it will help you to understand it so it's not entirely negative pain issues. He learned obedience from the things which he endured. Do you get that? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, now as Son of Man, is learning what it is to obey the Father. Can you, can you understand that? I can't. And he didn't start having been uh, baptized in Jordan and, 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 and anointed with, with the, the Holy Spirit as Messiah. I think he did this from an infant. When do children start to learn? Well, you better be quick about it, parents, because there's a lot they've got to learn in a lot of hurry, including that they need to listen to you. Jesus, from an infant, learned obedience to God, the Father. He learned through the course of his life until that huge crisis in Gethsemane that what was hard for him might yet still be the good and pleasing will of God, even though it was hard for him. Do you understand? Jesus spent all his life learning obedience through enduring life's tests. Now, when tests and troubles and things come to us, almost the last thing we think about is, what is God doing in me in this? Right? We think, why is this happening to me? When's it going to stop? You know? Job is a book of wisdom. Here's the wisdom that God gradually put into Job's heart. He started out complaining. He did start out doing well, but Later on, revelation, wisdom, begins to dawn in Job's heart. He says this, When he has tried me, I will come forth like pure gold. When he's finished testing me, I'm going to be out of this better than I went into it. Do you understand? He learned obedience through the things which he endured. Then, I don't know if it's secondly, thirdly, I've lost count. Jesus came to maturity. He came to maturity. We read in Luke that the child Jesus grew up and grew in wisdom. Jesus grew. And Jesus came to maturity, came to full manhood, came to full, full years, 30 odd years, 30 years of age before he became Messiah. Here it is. And having become made perfect, again, perfect is kind of old English, really. Mature is a better word there. He came, he came to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There's Melchizedek again. 
Maturity, having learned obedience through experience after experience and trial after trial, Jesus became mature. That he was then ready to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but also our perfect high priest to represent us, to pray for us, to strengthen us, to sustain us, because he knows, he's experienced it, he's endured it, he learned and became made mature. He's able to bring, provide us both pity and power. Or as one writer said, sympathy and succor. There's an old English word, isn't it? Succor. Understanding, strengthening. Because he was made mature. He came to maturity. Therefore, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. We've just read it there. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. I like that expression, the source of eternal salvation, because for too many people still, salvation is a something. Have you got salvation, brother? You know? People respond to a gospel invitation, they say a sinner's prayer, and they think, probably because someone told them, that they've now got it. Eternal salvation is entirely in Jesus and from Jesus. We are saved by being joined to Jesus and living in Jesus. That's the way that John's Gospel puts it again and again, in the words of Jesus himself. You abide in me and I abide in you. You have eternal life. You can ask what you want. And all the rest of it. It's living in Jesus. It's his life in us. Let me make a comparison to you. We understand what it is to be married. Marriage is having a partner, a husband or a wife, being joined together. Salvation is being joined to Jesus. Salvation is having Jesus as your saviour, your source, your supply. He's the source of eternal salvation. And here's another thought here. Salvation isn't a one-stop. It's a continual process. God doesn't give up being your saviour. Being your helper, being your rescuer, being your forgiver, being your strengthener. It's a lifelong thing. Jesus being my saviour. One old hymn I learned when I was a very new Christian. Jesus saves me now. Jesus saves me now. Yes, Jesus saves me all the time. Jesus saves me now. That's good doctrine. Someone asked John Sentamo, who's the Archbishop of York, isn't he? Uh, they asked him, I think it was Pentecostal, are you saved, brother? You know? And John Sentama replied, I have been saved, I am being saved, and please God, I will be saved. <laughs> that is good theology. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. It flows from him to us. But listen to this. To all those who obey him. He's the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Jesus learned obedience by the things that he endured. He endured the cross and the tomb so that he might bring us back to the obedience of faith. The thing that was broken in Eden. The thing that Eve, Adam and Eve both threw over. Obedience, allegiance, faithfulness to God. Jesus, by his overcoming by his obedience, restores us to what we could never be, which is to be obedient again. Obedient children. 
of the Heavenly Father. The obedience of faith. You've heard it from before. Romans almost begins and ends with that phrase. The obedience of faith. Faith is not faith without obedience. And repentance is returning to obedience. A lot of us think of repentance as being tearful and sorry and apologizing and asking forgiveness. Yeah, it's, it, it's, that's included. But if you read the famous passage at the end of 2 Corinthians about godly sorrow, godly sorrow or repentance is the way that Paul talks about it being godly sorrow, doesn't just stop when you've got your tears out and you've got your forgiveness. It starts with, no, how do I fix this? Where do I start to get it right? Repentance is a restoration to obedience. To walking again in the truth, to keeping his word. To think, we did this in one John, I know. To think of a Christian willfully disobeying God is simply nonsensical. To make the choice, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm not going to obey God in there. It just doesn't work. If we love him, we keep his commandments. And he saves those who obey him, because in the other way around, their obedience is the evidence that he is saving them. Their obedience is the sign, the evidence that he is saving them. I want to return again. I don't know how often I've gone back to the scripture. I ought to apologize, but I'm not going to. Peter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. We're going to get to the blood of Jesus later on in Hebrews as well. We often think about the blood of Jesus shed at the cross is the way that we and the reason for which we receive forgiveness for our sins. But there's another view here of the blood of Jesus, the one we'll come to Hebrews as well later, that we have been marked by the blood of the covenant. In the Old Testament, when the covenant was read, the law was read, sacrifices were made, the blood was taken, the sacrifice was given on the altar, but the blood was then sprinkled. I know this is gruesome. The the blood was sprinkled on the book of the law and on the people. Are you up for some blood drops today? I mustn't get into talking all about the blood of Jesus. We'll do that later. But Here's a simple point here. Peter writes it that way, that we are just like Israel, in that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Holy Spirit is working and sanctifying us because the blood of Jesus has marked us for what purpose? To obey him. To obey him. Now, if you are obeying him, you will know that you are because you'll be making decisions. There will be any number of moments in the course of the week where you are making a choice. Now, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this because I'm going to obey the Lord. You'll be making conscious decisions. You'll be making small, very small scale compared to Jesus, of course. Very small scale. But you'll be saying kind of the same thing he said in Gethsemane. Okay, look, but not my will, but yours. I'm putting aside my preference here. I'm putting aside my, my wanting to duck for the, the easy route and, 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 and take the easy way because then no one's, going to, no one's going to be offended, no one's going to criticize me. But no, no, I'll, I'll do it your way, Lord. I'll do what you say. I'll do what's the right thing. 
We consciously choose to bend our will to his will. And if you're not aware of that happening, I would want to suggest to you, you haven't got this yet. We are called, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus in that sense. I'll have to explain that some more when we get there in Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is at work sanctifying us so that we learn obedience. We learn to obey Jesus Christ. And we keep making decisions again and again and again where we are obeying him, we're preferring his will over our feelings, our preferences, our ease. Let me say it again to you. Faith is not faith without obedience. Repentance is far more than being sorry. It's returning to obedience. Obedience is the path to maturity. To live in obedience to Christ Jesus means that you begin to live with a clean conscience and therefore have confidence before God. Again, we learn those things in 1 John. And I pray that you may all live with such a clean conscience and with such confidence. Today, the Lord Jesus calls us to follow him. To endure the trials of life by receiving his mercy and grace. To go through with him. Now, I can't tell you how long through is. Could be a day, could be a week, could be a month, could be a year, could be the rest of your life. I can't can't tell you that. But I can tell you that his promise is true. He will take you through. But also to learn in every trial there is an obedience of faith to which you are called, to which you have been saved. We have Jesus who has both pity for us in our weakness and power to help us. So our weakness doesn't stay weak. It's overtaken by his might, his strength. He's promised to be with us and to take us through. And through humble obedience and prayer, we will receive again and again all that we need to endure, to go on, to complete the journey. I'm going to break bread in a few moments. And as we break bread today, we're thanking God for Jesus. We're thanking him that he's our source of eternal salvation or eternal source of salvation. You can flip that around. Jesus saves me now. Jesus saves me in these crises of life. Not just from my foolishness as a teenager growing up and all this, but right now in the things I'm dealing with, in the situation, the crises, in the hurts, in the offences, in, the, in, in, in the, 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 just the stuff of life. Jesus saves us now. A source of eternal salvation. To who? To all who obey him. I need to sign up. Submit my heart. Kill the pride. I'm here, Lord Jesus, to obey you. Because that's where I'm entirely safe. That's where I find confidence. That's where I find a clean conscience. That's where I can speak honestly and openly to you and receive your mercy. And your grace. We're going to play for you. Some of you got the notes. It's on the back page. An old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. I've been thinking about and singing this hymn a lot this last few weeks. As we started getting into Hebrews. So I thought I'd share it with you this morning.